Welcome to the Vertiguys show. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we are the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And we're going to start with, this is not a recap or a review, but we have, I'm afraid, some dark tidings. Well, yeah, potentially. I mean, yeah, it's not the greatest news. So we just heard that, I want to say this correctly, the Vertigo imprint has been ended. Yes, Vertigo has been cancelled. It's, I think, technically the first time in Vertigo history that it's been outright cancelled. There's been no Vertigo whatsoever. Well, I don't think that that's true. Okay. I think that this is the first time in the history of the Vertigo imprint that it has been officially ended. I don't think it's the first time there's been no Vertigo comic books on the stands. Oh, okay. But... To kind of skip to the end here, spoiler alert. Yeah. To kind of skip to the end here, the reason why I don't feel like this is the worst news ever is that these days, comic book companies are kind of reevaluating their strategies basically every two years. Yeah. They kind of try to utterly reinvent themselves every two years. Yeah, and there was a reboot of Vertigo like a year ago. Exactly. And Vertigo is just a stamp on a piece of paper. Yeah. Like, they can, they can start publishing Vertigo comic books again whenever they decide to. Yeah, I mean, that's true. They can they can start publishing Vertigo again, and there's nothing to stop them from doing, like, kind of indie-esque comics with weird creative teams, or kind of darker, more adult looks at their DC universe. There's nothing to stop them from still doing those things. It seems like they are trying to do Vertigo right now. Mm-hmm. They're trying to do it with DC Black Label. Right. Although DC Black Label is more focused on existing superheroes. Yeah, and uh, according to io9, the current books, including the Sandman universe spinoffs, will either finish up or transition to the newly updated version of the DC's current Black Label line. Okay, so some Vertigo comics will will transfer to Black Label. Yeah, and, and that's why I feel like I don't have the knowledge to totally have an opinion on this yet because we don't know what that means when they say most will either end or transition how many are going to get canceled we don't know what books are getting canceled right exactly so yeah i I mean vertigo yes it's all they have to do to make vertigo comics again is publish comics and say that they're vertigo yep so in a way this doesn't matter that much obviously it's a line it has an editor you know it needs a it needs a line editor and right now they don't feel like paying someone to do that which is a bit of a bummer. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, ultimately, there's just nothing in this that says that DC Comics has to stop printing dark, interesting stories for adults. Right. The Vertigo feel doesn't have to end. Right, exactly. I have liked most of the DC Black Label stuff that I've read. Mm-hmm. I think the DC Black Label is not as good of a name as right. Vertigo. I certainly would not want to see them reprinting a bunch of Vertigo stuff with all the Vertigo branding scrubbed off oh, and replaced yeah. with black label yeah i think that's sucks <laughs> and not just um, for our brand identity not just for <laughs> our brand identity but just because vertigo is a better i think be- vertigo is a better more interesting brand name than mm-hmm. than black label sure sure yeah i guess my concern is like if what we end up seeing here is most of the newer more experimental vertigo comics being canceled right if what ends up making the transition is like sandman universe and that's it. Then when they rebooted Vertigo a year ago, the concept was like, let's get some 
new talents in some unproven talents and do some really kind of off-the-wall concepts, let some people do their own thing. And so if all of those comics get canceled with the end of Vertigo, then that's like they're kind of abandoning that idea. Yeah. Unfortunately, none of those comics were super successful. Mm -hmm. Only one of them ever went to a second printing that was Border Town, which had to be canceled for unrelated Uh, reasons. Yes. So yeah, this latest Vertigo experiment, not super successful. Critically successful, but not commercially Mm, successful. Which is sort of the way of the world with good comic books. Yeah. So, yeah, unfortunate. But I think not the end of the world. Because again, Vertigo remains DC's intellectual property. Mm -hmm. They can start it up again anytime they want. Yeah. And it's not going to make the great comic books that we are covering on this podcast go away in any way, shape, or form. That's certainly fair. Well, speaking of great comic books, we've got four issues of Preacher today. Yeah, we've got four okay issues of Preacher. (laughs) Actually, we're not talking about great comic books, John. (laughs) Well, we're talking about comic books that are... I mean, these are kind of middling, and I think they're kind of middling by design. Yeah. Like, one of the issues that we're covering today is actually called Dotting the I's and Crossing the T's. Yes. And that is really what we're doing. Yeah, so we're definitely looking at sort of connective tissue. And I don't want to badmouth connective tissue, like, when an artist does not have the patience to do connective tissue, it can be really frustrating. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, I agree with that. But yeah, we have just come off, more or less, the Salvation arc, which was very long, and then the shorter sort of reunion arc. Yes. Where Jesse and Tulip meet back up in New York after Tulip has escaped from Cassidy's pernicious influence. You're the measure of my dreams, one might say. Yeah. Actually, no, they referenced Fairy Tale of New York, not Rainy Night in Soho. True. Oh, well. But yeah, the important thing is that Julie and... Julie? Jesse. Jesse. (laughs) Julie Custer. (laughs) Jesse and Tulip got back together. Oh my god, a gender-swapped preacher comic book. (laughs) Fund it. (laughs) I, I don't know if Baptist preachers can be women yet. Oh. I don't know. Yeah, that throws a wrench into the whole thing. Who do you think plays Julie Custer in the TV show? Um, what's her name from Farscape? Oh, Claudia Black? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good call. That'll work. They used to love that show. Jesse and Tulip got back together. That's important to know. Yeah, they are hanging out with Amy Grinderbinder right now. Amy, who has mixed emotions about the whole thing. Yeah. And so we are not quite to the final story arc yet. We are still... Wrapping things up and moving pieces into position. Readers, be reassured. Once you get to the end of this podcast, this particular episode, we will be in the home stretch of Preacher. There are, I think, 12 issues after this episode. Eight. There are eight issues. Okay. Well, so I knew it was an even number and a multiple of four. I was, I was almost right. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, we're coming down to it. Yeah, so... We open up on Preacher number 55, Harbinger, written by Garth Ennis, art by Steve Dillon, colors by Pamela Rambo, and a cover by Glenn Fabry. And why do you think that this issue is called Harbinger? Do you think that it's because, like, Eisenstein is sort of a harbinger of Hair Star's doom? That was my read, yeah. Okay. The other significant harbinger doesn't show up for about four issues. Right. On the cover, we have the character who we will come to know as Eisenstein. There's this scrawny little old man with a big, mean dog. Watch out, Steve Pugh, because this is a very big, mean-looking dog. Yes, indeed. 
Another excellent Glenn Fabry cover. And this character actually looks like he looks. Mm -hmm. And we open up on a character we may recognize, although he looks very different here, Hoover. Yeah, there's a man counting sand on a beach. He is up in the 2,900,990s. For crying out loud, not now, Mr. Fish. I've told you and I've told you. Don't interrupt me when I'm counting. And the same goes for you, Mr. Rock. Don't bother me when I'm so close. Yeah. He is, of course, talking to a dead fish and a rock. Yeah, and he's wearing scraps of black clothing. He's got wild black hair. He's a black gentleman. This is Hoover. We've seen him before. He was ordered to count three million grains of sand by Jesse Custer way back in the Jesus de Sade arc. 2,999,999. Oh my god. Three million! Three million! Yes! Yes! After all this time! Three million! Now, with that, we cut to McSorley's Old Ale House. This is Cassidy's favorite bar, as he discussed in his history of his time in New York. But standing outside, we find Jesse Custer. Yeah, and Jesse Custer is sort of grimly considering the place. He has a little flash of what the place was like in the 40s, with Cassidy standing outside, surrounded by his mates. Yeah, I really like this. We keep getting flashes of what the place would have looked like in its heyday. Obviously, just Jesse's imagination. He's dressed up in his uh, eye patch, which is kind of a necessity, and his cool black trench coat, which is not. It's sort of a very brooding look for a rather brooding period in the character's life. He walks into the bar. He gets another flash of what it would have been like with Cassidy and his mates there. And then he gets another flash of his conversation with Cassidy on the top of the Empire State Building. Mm -hmm. Specifically Cassidy saying, I can never say goodbye, Jesse. Now, he talks to the bartender. They have a little chat about the bar. It turns out that it's somewhat gentrified. The crowd now is mostly tourists and university students. There was a time when this place was something, all right. That a fact. Say, maybe you can help me out, or maybe you know someone can. You ever heard of a guy used to drink in here a long time ago? A guy by the name of Cassidy? And with that, we cut to a narration box informs us it's San Francisco. And this is basically the opening scene from Love Actually, but with a hair star twist. How I despise public displays of affection. Star is viewing all the people having happy reunions and trying not to vomit in his mouth. Featherstone points out how happy it is, all these people, seeing each other again. Oh, that's my grumpy old hair star. Cheer up, for goodness sake. Smile. It wouldn't kill you to be happy just once in your life. What's got into you? <laughs> so they are supposed to meet a man, we learn, who has been sent by the Grail, the sort of Grail bureaucracy. Yeah. Some worthless crumb of Dick Cheese Lassan Marie have sent to look into the Monument Valley thing. And if those clowns think they can question the actions of their own Allfather, they can fucking think again. He explains how he's going to send their fucking errand boy back with two feet of wooden leg jammed up his arsehole. Yeah, Hairstar lost a leg in the aftermath of the Monument Valley fiasco. Yeah, and he's, he's going to kick this guy's ass. He's not particularly afraid of who the Grail have sent. They have a little conversation here about Featherstone says, I didn't think there was a Grail hierarchy left. And indeed, we kind of didn't know that there was anyone Star had to answer to until this moment. Yeah, this is almost a bit of a retcon that there's enough of Grail power structure left for him to have to worry about. But yeah, it provides an important piece of tension. 
Back at McSorley's in the city of New York. There's an old homeless person who comes into the bar and the bartender is trying to chase him or her out. Give me a beer, fuck ya! You know you ain't allowed in here, goddammit! Out! Get out, now! I ain't sucking your dick, ha! Huh? I'm gonna call the cops and have them bust your ass! I'm gonna have them shoot ya! <laughs> yeah, so the bartender can't help Jesse, but Jesse suspects there is someone else who can. And he meets this person out behind the bar. Looking for Cassidy? Looking for someone might know him. That's kind of apropos of nothing, since the homeless person wasn't in the bar when he mentioned Cassidy. This is true. This is true. But the homeless person does in fact tell him that Cassidy used to drink here, and if he hands over five bucks, he can meet tomorrow to hear about Cassidy. Or, or rather, there's a quick exchange here. Jesse doesn't believe at first that this homeless person knows anything about Cassidy. Cassidy came on a boat from Ireland about a hundred years ago. Used to drink in a place here with Mick McCann and a crew. Cassidy the fucking crazy man. Always look at me, look at me. Cassidy can't go out in the sun. Ha! <laughs> Funny thing about Cassidy. All you ever gotta say is the bastard's name. <laughs> Back in the airport, we get sort of another one of... <laughs> a, a somewhat gratuitous scene here? Yeah, a, another one of Harry Star's trademark shows of impatience. Well, I've written here, Star shoots another radio. <laughs> yeah, that's basically exactly it. He's on the moving walkway. He has no patience for people who stand on the moving walkway. Um, moving walkway, granny fuck, not moving standway. He has no patience for the PA, which continually announces, you are approaching the end of the moving walkway, even when that's manifestly not true. <laughs> Please be ready to push your trolley over the ramp. Yeah, he shoots the loudspeaker. He has a real problem with audio. I'm amused here that Featherstone tries to mollify the situation by saying, Don't be alarmed, we're shooting a movie! That's Patrick Stewart! The Grail is the best-kept secret in the world, isn't it? But it won't be for much longer if you start terrorizing international airports. But Star doesn't buy that. He basically says that everybody in the airport are sheep, and he could drive a big red and white truck through here with official sponsors Armageddon 2000 painted on it and get no reaction. Wake up, sheeple! Yeah. Okay, so they're ready to uh, put the fear of God into the Grail representative, and then we get a full page as we meet the Grail representative. Yes, the Grail representative is a little old man. He's wearing the Grail colors, but sort of grudgingly. He's wearing a white shirt and a red tie, but he's got a brown suit that one imagines he has never seen without on over the whole thing. Yeah, and this is middle management. We met this guy way back in One Man's War, the Hairstar Special. Yes, we did. That's right. We never had a name for him up to this point. He's also accompanied by a very big man in a standard white and red grail suit. How big are ya? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Star reacts. Is he nonplussed, or does nonplussed mean he doesn't have a reaction? Nonplussed, I think, means no reaction. Oh, well, he's plussed then. Eisenstein. Yeah, Star shits himself. Not literally. Meanwhile, Amy's apartment. They chat a little bit about the dog, about how Tulip is doing rehabbing from the alcohol and pills that Cassidy had her on. And Amy has her own complaints. The nicest guy I've met in about five years has had his scrotum chemically disintegrated. There's fucking irony for you. Right, Amy's kind of gently jealous of Tulip's romantic success. Not to the point of casting a wedge between them, but she's a little depressed. To hell with it. I shall become a bitter, twisted hag with nothing but rouge and one-liners to disguise the emptiness of my existence. 
and I shall drown the memory of numerous loveless affairs in a tsunami of vodka. I think gin's more traditional. Now, Amy asks why they haven't hit the road again in their quest to find God, but Tulip says that Jesse can't move on until he until he's gotten to the bottom of the Cassidy situation. To Jesse, it's like a mystery, you know? How could he have let someone that bad get so close to him? Back at the airport, Eisenstein sort of, with grudging cordiality, greets Star and says that he's got some research to conduct before they really have a talk. So he's basically going to conduct his own investigation and come back to Star when he knows what's going on. My aide and I have something to collect before proceeding to our lodgings. I would be grateful for your company on the journey, Father Star. The female, too. Yeah, I'm impressed by the way that Eisenstein immediately takes over the situation. You know, Star is the Allfather, but Eisenstein immediately has Star following him as he decides where we're going. He's the man who initiated me into the Grail. Half of everything I know I learned from him. Right, just in case we didn't remember. We saw this in One Man's War, but yeah, Eisenstein is the guy who recruited Star. I was supposed to be the Allfather's right-hand man, but all I really ever did was bump people off. It was Eisenstein who set them up for me. He gathered the data. He knew everything. It was thanks to him that the Aranix's grip on the Grail was absolute. I hadn't heard from him in years. I assumed he'd popped his clogs. That's why I felt confident enough to make the moves I did. Right, Star had assumed Eisenstein was dead because he looked about a hundred when I met him. Star also kind of tells us what's uh, on the line here. If I tell him to go home, the wankers in La Sainte Marie will know something's up. Masada, the valley, seizing control. One more foot wrong and I can kiss goodbye to the Grail's funds and resources. And then I'll be all father of sweet fuck all. Yeah, although, in fairness, the Grail's resources are severely depleted due to Star's overzealousness. And that's more or less what Eisenstein is here to investigate. At this point we meet Eisenstein's cargo. Her name is Jezebel. My aide is also her keeper. Before he joined the Grail, he was a captain in Soviet Special Forces. He was Spetsnaz. It would be hard to say which of the two is more carnivorous. And by which of the two, we are now referring to the big mean dog from the cover. He's got this big, scary, I want to say bulldog, but I'm not really an expert on this kind of thing, that's been transported in a cage. Yeah. You know, John Constantine Hellblazer faced a dog almost that big once. (laughs) Well, it wouldn't do to sow discard between the comic books. He adds by way of pointing out that he does not miss a trick. I have looked like this since I was 12. Right. Star said something about he looked about 100 when he first met him. Did we read that line? Yeah. Yeah, and Eisenstein heard it. Eisenstein obviously overheard it. The ears aren't for show. Okay, so Jesse has met up with the homeless person the following day. We don't see the $5 change hands, but we can presume that it did. Name's Sally. Ain't gonna shake hands. Just wiped my ass with mine. Huh? It's important to point out we've sort of been coy about the gender of this person because they're very androgynous. Until they said their name was Sally, we couldn't have told. Right. How do you know him? Sally says that she's been going to McSorley's all her life and asks Jesse, how do you know him? Messed you up, huh? Money or woman? Ha! See, she figures that Jesse wants to know not where Cassidy is, but about Cassidy, the story of Cassidy. At some point, Jesse apparently found out what a son of a bitch Cassidy is, and now he wants the full story on that. The stuff he doesn't tell. Huh, that's his other fucking trick. Gets you to fucking love him and then stabs you in the back. Love him so much you don't believe he did it. Blood all over you, big fucking knife in your back, and you don't believe he did it. Give me five bucks and meet me here lunchtime tomorrow. Jesse 
tries to give her more than five bucks to give her money enough to get a room. Protecting your investment, ha? Huh? She explains that all she would do with it is get more beer, but he doesn't have to worry about her dying. She's going to be there tomorrow. Right. Going to tell you about him. All of the happy, happy nights and the smack and the hell around the back of the bars. All the stuff he left out. Back in San Francisco, we get a reunion. Yeah, Hoover shows up at the hotel room, which is temporary Grail headquarters, where Featherstone and Star have been hanging out. Yeah, I think they were working out of San Francisco when he went away, so this is sort of serendipity. Oh, Hoover? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. They were in San Francisco when they ran into this, uh... Featherstone... I wouldn't say she's delighted to see Hoover, but she's certainly sympathetic to his plight. Star doesn't seem like he could give a shit. Hoover, oh yes, the idiot who got me butt-fucked. That's all I bloody well need. And Star is clasping his head. What in the name of fuck am I gonna do? He's very worried about the Eisenstein situation, and that, rather abruptly, is the end of the issue. This is, I mean, you've mentioned before how preacher story arcs run together to the point where you really have to read them in blocks. Yeah, that's true. And this one really, uh, ends without any kind of resolution. So that brings us to Preacher number 56. Smile like the gates of hell. And let's talk about this cover here. It's got just about every Preacher character on it. Yeah, everyone we've ever met. And some other people who I don't think really we particularly know who they are. Yeah, that may be true. We got see... the devil there. Well, we met the devil in the Saint of Killers miniseries. Yep, we've got the angel. The angel, Genesis's father, who is actually drinking a Coke on the cover. We've got the murderer guy. I can't remember what his murderer name was. The Reaver Cleaver? The Reaver Cleaver, yeah, yeah, he's there. Yeah, Sai and his victim, also on the cover. Here's one of the Enfants Toussaint guys. We've got Sheriff Cindy. We've got Allfather de Aranique. I want to point out that Jesse is actually on this cover twice, because here's John and Christina, and they've got their baby with him. Oh, yep, that's little Jesse. And like two rows in front of him are Jesse, Tulip, and Cassidy with the Saint of Killers close at hand. Yeah, and our space. Who's this guy in the trench coat? Do you recognize him? Where? Just above the Saint of Killers. I couldn't place that guy. I thought, is that Neil Gaiman? <laughs> yeah, kind of looks like it might be Neil Gaiman or John Constantine. Handsome guy in a trench coat, dark hair. Yeah, I do not know who that is supposed to be. Is Hair Star on here somewhere? Yeah, he's right behind the Saint of Killers. Oh, yep, there he is. That's him. So this is a pretty cool cover, kind of a building towards the end of the series, a reminder of all the people that we've met. Not an incredibly appropriate cover for this issue, but what do you do? Yeah, I think it was just like a cover that Glenn Fabry had always wanted to do. Yeah, that's fair. And he found a more or less a filler issue. Somewhere in Georgia, my considered opinion is fuck you. Yes, we come in on Gene Sargent, Arseface's musical manager, working his magic. We at Georgia Records shit from a great height on the suggestion that Arseface can be held liable for anything, whether through his lyrics, appearance, or actions. Arseface pops in. Hey, Gene! <laughs> I haven't heard you do that voice in a while. Now, before Gene hangs up the phone, it's important that he mentions, I'll merely pass on his opinions due to his, haha, little problem with self-expression. Whatever I say comes straight from the ass's mouth. So he's been calling some people and wreaking some fucking havoc. 
And he's been accrediting Arseface with everything that he says and does. Yeah, so Arseface is here because he's got some bills for Jean to pay. He also mentions that he has not been receiving his royalties. My boy, please don't concern yourself about your royalties. I can assure you they and these bills will be paid at once. Meanwhile, here's a young lady with enormous breasts. <laughs> Gene's accent allows him to be comically blunt at times. He's pulling a distraction here, but it works. And we can actually see, as Arseface drools in the final panel of this page, that Gene is casually throwing the bills in the garbage behind him. <laughs> right. Yeah, something's, something's amiss at Georgia Records. I'm sorry. George Records. Yeah, it's important that you say it that way. That's the actual name. So we come in on a full page of the McSorley's crowd with the modern-day Cassidy looming in the background. And we are hearing Sally's story. This is also our title page. He was funny and crazy and charming and lucky, and he always knew just what to say. Nicest piece of shit I ever did meet. As she talks, Sally coughs up a tooth, which worries Jesse to some extent. But she says, Relax, happens all the time. Slept 20 hours straight last night, trying to fix it so I don't wake up at all. Or was I? Yeah, so Jesse has heard Cassidy's version of the story. She's here to fill in the stuff in between. And not much develops in this scene. It's just a reminder of that this is going on. Kind of getting our bearings. Yeah. Meanwhile, in San Francisco... Now, I wonder if when we do these meanwhile in San Francisco's, are they accounting for the time change? <laughs> You mean, is this happening at the same time or three hours? Is this happening at the very same moment in San Francisco, or is it happening at the same time on the clock in San Francisco? Yeah. Which well, would actually be three hours earlier. If a faster mode of transportation or communication didn't exist, there'd be no reason to worry about it. Three hours later. Uh, that's right. The West Coast delay. I built a little fort. Yeah. Hoover explains that he built a fort. The fish get caught in the fort when the tide comes in. And the fort protects the sand from the wind, so he could count up a million grains, or three million grains, as it were. He asks how Featherstone has been, and Featherstone has mainly been concerned with Hair Star. He's just that same old Hair Star. Yeah, she says he's had a couple of odd moments recently, but nothing that irrational. And that's when the computer comes flying out the window of the hotel room, accompanied by Star's voice. Fucking computers! You want to read the whole Star line? No, not particularly. <laughs> Although, bring me the head of Bill fucking Gates is pretty funny. Star is pissed because it turns out Eisenstein hacked their computers and found out what they had on them. It's probably the first thing he fucking did. Before we move on, I just want to talk a little bit about the fact that, I just want to mention the fact that Featherstone in this scene as she's talking to Hoover is kind of making some excuses for Star. It's obviously been tough for her accompanying him through this increasingly bad time and his increasingly poor temper. But she seems fine with it. She's justifying it. She's a glutton for punishment. So it would seem. Star interrogates Featherstone as to whether there was anything that can incriminate him on those computers. Tell me you weren't stupid enough to keep data that sensitive on a goddamn computer. No, no, I, I wouldn't have. Except, oh god, except for Eddie Peck. And we cut to Eddie Peck. Edward Peck. My name is Eisenstein. Mr. Peck, whatever you do, don't look round. That's a bit of a Britishism, but I guess Eisenstein is European, so it's fine. Maybe he learned to speak English and British. Exactly. Back in New York, Sally is telling a story. She mentions that 
Cassidy lost touch with Mick McCann, the proprietor of McSorley's at that time, which is good, because it would be a shame if McCann had to see what Cassidy turned into later. I thought McCann was the proprietor. Oh, was he not? I thought he was just a barfly. But... Okay, that's fine. Yeah, whichever way. Anyway, McCann was a good friend of Cassidy's, and she's glad he didn't see Cassidy at his worst. We see here a flashback to what I think we'll find out is the 40s. Cassidy is flanked by two beautiful women. The 40s or the 30s. What was on and the girls worked in a factory and they made a lot of money and he borrowed a lot of money. And he was living with, it was Gelly or Hildy at a time. It wasn't Joan. After a while, she found out why he wasn't paying it back. And we see here Gilly or Hildy walks in on Cassidy shooting up. Yeah, and on the next page, we note that Cassidy puts on his trademark sunglasses before he talks to Gilly. What's that? She asks. Fun. Yeah? Jesse knew that Cassidy did it, but didn't know it was like this. He can try everything there is to try. He's got lifetimes. Except Gilly or Hildy'd only one. Back in San Francisco, we learned that Eddie Peck was one of the freelancers hired for the Desaad raid. Yeah, this is way back. But yeah, they hired a bunch of freelance mercenaries to go after Jesse. They couldn't use Grail personnel because they didn't want the Grail knowing that they were tracking an alternate messiah. Right, which is how this whole thing is going to end up getting star-fucked. Right, exactly. Featherstone felt they had to take care of Peck because he got shot and paralyzed in the raid, probably by Tulip. Well, she says he catches a stray, which, if it was Tulip... It wasn't a stray. Yeah, Tulip puts the bullets where she wants them. <laughs> but for all we know, maybe Featherstone and Peck interpreted it as a stray because Tulip is so good at shooting that they didn't realize that she shot him in the face on purpose. Yeah, and that's in keeping with the Grail's reaction to Tulip at that time. They don't seem capable of believing that she's the threat there. You should have killed him, Featherstone. You should have had his throat cut from ear to ear. Instead, she got him a private room and the best care affordable in a hospital. He's doing very well. He's doing remarkably. He's going to get me killed. Star goes on to explain that if Eisenstein questions Peck, he will learn about the Desaad raid. He will learn that Star was seeking a potential alternate messiah, Jesse Custer, this guy who'd been doing miracles in America. And if he figures that out and he puts it together with the fact that the child got killed at Masada under Star's watch, the child being the last ascendant of Christ, He's going to figure out that Star usurped control of the Grail. Any other acts of kindness you want to tell me about Featherstone? Set up a relief fund for the poor irradiated Navajo with my fucking name on it? Anything like that? No? Good. Well, I'm going to spend some time with my scrotum. May as well enjoy our last couple of hours together. Yeah. There's another little bit here we should mention, which is that Featherstone doesn't realize Custer is alive, but Star does. Star has figured out that Jesse survived the nuclear blast in Monument Valley. Surviving a nuclear blast is not an easy thing to do. No, I mean... HBO's Chernobyl. <laughs> Check it out, everyone. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but Jesse had direct help from the Almighty, so he was able to pull it off that way. Okay, so just as Star has feared, Eisenstein is talking to Eddie Peck right now. Local anesthetic. Don't look round. You mustn't look round. You are a strong man, Mr. Peck. Ex-military, you do not break easily. Eisenstein goes on to explain that he's he's seen a lot of tortures and he's got a really good one, I guess. Yeah, he doesn't understand all these elaborate tortures, because it's the simplest thing in the world. Yeah, he, he asks about the term Spetsnaz, reminds Eddie again not to look around, explains that one time the 
Soviets and some NATO guys were all in trouble, and they ended up holed up in a cabin, and they had food in their larder for another week. The blizzard lasted, too. You can look now. And Eisenstein's personal bodyguard is eating Eddie's hand. Right, so this is basically a, a somewhat more dynamic way of filling us in on the fact that Eisenstein has caught up on the plot. We don't see Eddie answer the questions. We just see that Eisenstein has presented him with an irresistible torture, which is that while anesthetized, his Spetsnaz bodyguard is eating the guy. Quick point here, there is a panel at the bottom left of this page where Eddie looks not round to see the Spetsnaz guy, but straight ahead and sees the dog peeking in between the bars of his hospital bed, and it looks really cool and scary. Yeah. Dogs are the worst. I mean, they're also great and wonderful, but also the worst. Somewhere in Georgia... Yeah, we we cut in on what must be Arseface having sex, though we see it only through a a window here. But he's saying, With the shaft! Right, which I thought was funny, just in that, like, this is kind of a parodic recounting of an earlier moment, because we heard Odin Quincannon's sexual instructions back in the Salvation Arc. And now they're cast in a completely ridiculous light as Art's face's sexual instructions. They were pretty ridiculous at the time. <laughs> but Gene Sargent is reading that Art's face's single has fallen to number three. His single, incidentally, is My Heart Will Go On. It has fallen behind uh, Line Up Them Bitches by Da Brown Dog and Dyslexic Fro Loev by Analis Soromet. <laughs> That will never do. Get me the Vatican, please. Back to the main plot here. I thought you got paid yesterday. But that was last week. Last Friday of the month, remember? Oh, I... Well, give us whatever you got on you, then. I ain't got a dime to my name. Absolutely nothing. You're completely cleaned out. Well, I mean, there's my savings, but... There you are, then. You can go down and get your savings out tomorrow morning, as soon as the bank opens. Yeah, so Cassidy is wheedling money out of Gilly or Hildy. Yeah, every dime. It's not really revealed at this point, but he's, I, I think we'll find out that he's got her hooked on heroin as well. Oh, totally. And so they're going through all of their money to pay for that habit. Totes my goats. Be a good girl. Or that's my darling, or you know it's a right thing, or Cass knows best, and then one day just bitch. You stupid fucking whore. How are we meant to score with nothing? What the fuck is nothing gonna buy? But the rent. Fuck the rent. Yeah. She suggests going without, meaning going without the heroin, but he says that's basically impossible and she doesn't know what she's talking about. They go down to see a guy. Cassidy knows. This guy is named Bill. Cassidy tries to charm or pull at the guy's heartstrings and it doesn't work. Your girlfriend can suck my dick for a couple of caps. So can you. I'm not particular. Right. Sometime later... Cassidy and Gilly or Hildy hanging out in her apartment, detoxing. I feel sick. No, you don't. Another hour or two, then you'll know what sick means. I can't believe that wee bastard. Maybe I could go and see him? I didn't fucking say that, did I? Just to get what we need. Did I fucking say that? Well, maybe you could go. And Cassidy hauls off and hits her. And Cassidy, remember, we haven't mentioned it this episode, Cassidy's a vampire. He's really fucking strong. Yeah, he has super strength. So when he when he domestic abuses somebody without abandon, it really fucks them up. And she's keeled over on the couch, blood 
pouring out of her mouth, broken jaw. Cassidy just runs away. Sully closes the story for the day. Gets worse. Give me five bucks and meet me here lunchtime tomorrow. She walks away, and Jesse looks up despairingly at the sky. Cassidy. All right, on the cover of Preacher number 57 of the Irish in America, oh, worth mentioning that 56 and 57 have the same credits as 55, we got a nearly naked... Nope, he is naked. We got a naked... Well, he's wearing sunglasses. All right, valid point. We got a nearly naked Feral Cassidy, his fingers trailing blood on the wall as he's kind of crawling through this alley. Yeah. It's a striking image. We come in on the Grail Hotel Room. Yeah, with uncharacteristic frankness here, Garth Ennis is filling us in on who likes who simply by having thought bubbles over people's heads. Well, he makes it funny, at least. Hoover is thinking H and F, Hoover and Featherstone. Featherstone is thinking F and S, Featherstone and Star. And Star is thinking a picture of a turd. Shit. Right, enough is enough. Get on the phone and hire some scum, Featherstone. We're going to kill that bastard. Cut to the continuation of Sally's story. I thought Gilly was dead after Cassidy hit her last episode, but it turns out she recovered. Yeah, but her big city dreams were in shreds, so she got on the bus back to Iowa. Yep. Not before telling the whole crew everything that had happened. Right, and then they didn't see Cassidy for a year. And then one night the war ended, and everyone's happier than they'd ever been in their lives, and we're in some bar and someone taps Joni on the shoulder and says, How are yous? Helped it was that night, but mostly it was him. Him and his best, you know. So pretty soon one thing led to another. And we learned that the day of the Hiroshima bomb, Joni and Cassidy got engaged, and juxtaposed with that pleasant-sounding notion, we have an image of what Cassidy and Joni's life together looked like. The two of them... Whacked out, barely conscious, on a filthy mattress. Yeah, she's naked, he's in piss-stained boxers. Yeah, there's a spent needle on the ground and a rat kind of nosing around the scene. And the title says, Of the Irish in America. Which is not entirely fair. Many Irish people have done considerably better than this. Fair enough, yeah. Somewhere in Georgia. Gene pops in on face in the bath with two hookers. A moment of your time, my boy. Sure thing, Gene! Yeah, he wants a little bit of comment for an article. Arseface is occupied. Hi, Arseface. Ruth Cole here at The Voice. Hi, yeah. I was hoping I could ask you a couple of brief questions about this latest controversy. Uh, like how it feels to be condemned by the Vatican. And what it was prompted you to call the Pope and tell him to kiss your ass in the first place. So this time, Gene may have bitten off more than he can chew. Or more than Arseface can chew, more accurately. That doesn't seem hard. Oh god, that wasn't intended to be a pun. Sally goes on telling the story. She says if Cassidy was smart, then he would have drunk enough blood to see him through a high, basically. But and he didn't. low. Yeah, but he didn't. So he got, he got really low, he got really weak. End of that year, I could have kicked his ass. Things jo- got bad for Joni. He kept saying he wasn't scoring, how could he with no money? But she knew he was. So Joni goes out, wrapped in nothing but a blanket, in the snow, to get herself a a fix, she says, or she would die. And what the fuck are you looking at, says Bill, when she encounters him in the back alley. Yeah, we turn the page and we find Bill zipping up as Cassidy wipes his mouth. Guess you two know each other. Oh, sorry, Cassidy, forgot to tell you. All out tonight. Yeah, so... 
I've got mixed feelings about this scene. Obviously, Cassidy's not gay, and selling himself for heroin is a pretty low ebb. On the yeah, other hand, I'm 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 upset that his like his shocking lowest point is that he sucked a dick. Right. Is... Lots of people have a lot of fun sucking dicks. Exactly. Yeah, it's a it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit homophobic, not for any of the characters, just for the comic itself. Yeah. I guess Bill is the most like evolved dude in the story. <laughs> and he's not particular. Right. Bill goes inside, Cassidy screams, No because there's no heroin. Uh right, yeah. Oh fuck off, Joni. Just fuck off and leave me alone. And then very, very quietly. Help me. And she did. Dragged his ass home, got him back just before sunrise. He knew she would, see. Cassidy always knows, because Cassidy fucking preys on people. Now, Cassidy and Joni are in bed. He says he just needs a wee bit. She says we both do, but he doesn't mean the heroin. No, no, just a wee bit. Just to make me strong. And he lunges his teeth toward her neck. Right, she freaks out, runs. Uh, Joni! It's just a drop. Just a fucking drop. Rips a curtain off the wall and suddenly Cassidy is aflame. She ran. He hid. She never seen him again. I can score for fuck's sake. I'll be strong enough to go out. I can get us all the junk we need. Yeah, which this sort of answers a question, which is how the hell could Cassidy be so broke when he's super strong? Like, he could find some way to work. And the answer is that he's not smart enough to do that. He gets so high and goes without blood so long that he's weak. Terribly, terribly weak. That's right. So, Joni went home on the bus again. And this is really effective because, like, obviously, like, I'm not the biggest fan of the notion of flyover states. I live in one. But... I don't think most people consider Michigan a flyover state. Fair enough. But, this is effective because we know how Cassidy feels about New York. America in general, and New York in particular. That it's emblematic of the American dream, that it's the place where you can go and anything can happen. You can always begin again. And Cassidy is, by driving these women out of New York, by sending them home on the bus back to whatever middle of nowhere town they come from, he is depriving them of that. He is taking the American dream from them. He's killing their dreams. He's a dream killer. Yeah, exactly. Sort of like Freddy Krueger. He took their dreams from them when they first met him, and uh, not in a good way. <laughs> yeah, he didn't keep them with him and put them with his own. Right. So, Sally eventually visits Cassidy, just wanting to make sure that she's okay. And we get a slow build to this reveal. A mostly empty apartment, dead rats on the floor. A totally emaciated Cassidy is finishing eating a rat. Just give us a minute. Be right with you. Right, he's skeletal and bald. Dying for a lack of blood, but unable to go out. Still running when I hit Penn Station. Still smelling when the train got into Boston. Now we cut to a comedic montage of murder attempts. First, we see a sniper trying to shoot Eisenstein, but his scope finds the Spetsnaz guy who shoots him. Shit. <laughs> yeah, each of, these, each of these assassinations is punctuated by Star saying, Shit, as it doesn't work. We got a guy delivering flowers which contain a bomb, but the Spetsnaz guy just slams the door in his face. We got some ninjas busting in the window, but the Spetsnaz guy and the dog make short work of them. Eisenstein doesn't even have to look up from his papers. Right. Now, Sally meets Cassidy years later. The way he's dressed, I'm guessing it's the 80s now? This looks like the 80s. Yeah. She just tells him to fuck off. 
You're so full of fucking shit. You think that makes you romantic? You think you're this charming rogue or something? Who the fuck do you think you are even talking to me? You let loose fucking hell on earth, and now you're gonna pat the world on the back and buy it a drink and everything will be alright? Saw it on his face. Nobody ever talked to him like that. Nobody called him on all that fucking bullshit. He didn't even know it was bullshit. Cried my fucking heart out that night. Uh, as they have this conversation, Jesse and Sally are sitting down on a park bench. And Jesse asks what Cassidy said. She says, might have been sorry, might have been I need ya. She hands over a picture of the old crowd. Cassidy with Mick McCann and Joni and a pretty blonde woman who Jesse guesses must have been Sally. Oh no, what a tragedy. She used to be so pretty, and now she's not pretty anymore. Oh yeah. Isn't it tragic when a pretty person isn't pretty anymore? So sad. Yeah, you basically called it there. I have nothing to add to that. There's just like a lot of pretty equals good in the kind of storytelling here, you know? Yeah. Like it's yeah, this big disaster that Cassidy messed up her life enough. I mean, don't get me wrong, it is a disaster that Cassidy messed up so many people's lives, but the way that that's portrayed here is very much like it's a disaster that Cassidy messed up this homeless lady's life to the point where she's not pretty anymore. Look how pretty she used to be. Right, she used to be pretty. She's now overweight and you can't really tell she's a woman. How horrible. Uh, yeah, I mean... And she's dying on a park bench. Well, and there we come to it, which is the Jesse comments on the photo. She doesn't answer. He looks over and she is sitting in a pool of her own blood. Aw, oh, hell. Now... This is a park bench, not a bus stop bench, but I had to kind of wonder if Garth Ennis was playing a little bit with the Forrest Gump trope here. You know, she tells a a story of horror and then dies on the bench. Somebody die on the park bench in Forrest Gump? No, I'm saying he tells an inspirational story and then goes and meets the love of his life. Right. So Jesse does the conscientious thing, apparently, and calls the cops for the ambulance because we see Sally being carried away. So what exactly happened to her? Ah, uh, the way these old bums live, the body eventually just quits on them. Just up and shits its guts out or whatever. Listen, asshole. Whoa, Reverend, take it easy. I mean, come on, man. Jesus. I am pissed at you, partner. I'm just pissed. All right, now we cut to somewhere in Georgia. There are people protesting outside Arsland. They have I don't signs. have an air horn here, but okay. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, there are picket signs. One of them says, you kiss his ass. Another one says, fuck with the Pope, you fuck with me. Yeah, so Christians nationwide are angry at arse face. He is And they're chanting, wipe the arse, wipe the arse. (laughs) Oh yeah, that's kind of funny. He's looking out the window and he's just clueless about the whole thing. But Gene tells him there's good news. Your single's back at number one. Grail Hotel Room. Eisenstein has finished his report and summons Star to a meeting. This is all your fault, Featherstone. You will be pleased to hear I've completed my research. I would like to discuss my conclusions with you over breakfast in my suite. Eight o'clock sharp, Featherstar. Guy sounds like a fucking nerd. Oh, well. Doing research. <laughs> waking up early enough for breakfast. <laughs> nerd shit. <laughs> I guess that's how you get ahead in life. Or at least in the international conspiracy. I thought it was ruthlessness. <laughs> I mean, Star's got ruthlessness, Eisenstein's got brains. We'll see how that one works out. What are you looking at, Tulip asks Jesse. Yeah, kind of quasi-post-coitally? In an intimate moment, for sure. Yeah. Oh, he still has his clothes on. He's got his shirt open. Does he have his pants open? I don't, I don't know. I guess not. 
I mean, there's more to... Never mind. <laughs> you mean coitus? <laughs> Only good thing there is, he says. Yeah, she asks if they're about to be done with this Cassidy business. He says, I'll be over soon. Amy is apparently at PTA night because I guess she's a teacher at a school. It's a tough gig. Yeah. Underpaid, those people. She asks him what he's been finding and he just kind of dissembles, which is an interesting moment for me. Like, yeah, Cassidy's such a liar. And here we kind of have Jesse lying to his girlfriend, which is sad. Right, exactly. Their relationship is usually so egalitarian. Uh, Jesse and Tulip, I mean. And he's been trying to learn to do better about that the whole series. But right now he's protecting her from the truth about Cassidy by not telling it. I think he's going to tell it once he's processed it. Mm -hmm. He's just still dealing with all this himself. Yeah. Well, here to make that not any easier, there is a knock at the door. And it is Cassidy. On that note, we enter Preacher number 58. Dot the I's and cross the T's. Same credits as before, plus Patricia Mulvihill as an additional colorist. The cover is by Glenn Fabry. It shows Arseface looking worried, shocked, and the word banned has been stamped over him. Yeah, he's kind of in black and white. Like, Well, I guess his hair's a little red, but kind of like a monochrome photo of him. Yeah, what do you call that? That It's not sepia tone, it's blue. But mm. it's, you know. I don't know. He's here in sad Europe tone. <laughs> in German film? All right, before we get back to that amazing cliffhanger, we have a catch-up on a very old plotline. Yeah, we've been juggling three plotlines for the last three issues. Now in this issue, we've got a fourth one to add to the mix. There are astronauts flying a space shuttle. Yeah. And either by some kind of sophisticated radio intercept or by some kind of sophisticated hacking... Johnny Lee Wombat is listening to their transmissions. Yeah, I, I guess I interpreted this as we're supposed to believe you can just use a CB radio to hear NASA transmissions. Well, he has a big-ass satellite. Yeah, that's true. He's got, yeah, he's got an array here. Unlike the time we began on an F-16, they do not uncover anything interesting in space. We're going to come back to this anyway. So Jesse's standing there in the door. Cassidy's standing there as well. I thought you were... Did you... What happened to you? Did you land in a river or something? Trying to figure out how Jesse survived. The last time Cassidy saw him, he was falling out of a plane. I came to see if uh, Tulip was staying here. With her mate Amy, I mean. She wasn't doing so well the last time I saw her, you know. And I don't know if she said anything, but she was in a bit of a state. Jesse just stares at him sternly. Do you mind not looking at me like that? Yeah, and Tulip has been going to get something in the background, and now she has it. She points a fucking desert eagle at Cassidy's face. Jesus, hold on. Fuck you, you piece of shit. Get out of here now. For fuck's sake, Tulip. I just wanted to see you were all right. I was worried about you. Last time I saw you, you didn't know what you were doing. She says she knew exactly what she was doing. She put a bullet through his ass and she'll do it again. He says she's crazy. She says he's crazy if he thinks he's going to walk away with her. At this point, Amy shows up and also pulls a gun she on Cassidy. further complicates the situation. Step the fuck back and freeze, asshole. Jesus fucking Christ! Shut it! You even breathe wrong and I'll blow your head through the ceiling, you evil little fuck! Right, he reiterates that he's just here to see if Tulip's okay. Amy and Tulip are not having it. I'm fine, Cassidy. Now that I'm free of you, I couldn't be better. But you make me want to puke, showing up here like you never dragged me into hell with you for six months. Like you never kept me so stoned, the thought of fucking you wouldn't make me want to put a goddamn gun in my mouth. Yeah, this goes on for a minute. Amy's got a good line here. 
Will you stop pointing them fucking guns at me for Jesus' sake? Not till you're gone or they're empty. Alright, so he's starting to get angry and he says, I fucking mean it. I don't like having guns pointed at me, right? I'm fucking warning you's here. Well, I guess that's more than Gilly got. Jesse interjects quietly but effectively. As this suddenly stops Cassidy yapping. Gilly from Iowa, you remember. You smashed your face and wrecked your life. You never gave her no warning. How? How did you? Look, I don't know what you've heard, or... I wasn't that simple, right? I mean, I know this all seems a bit weird with Tulip and everything, but... Jesus, I wouldn't do that to her. I'm still me. Your animal thinks it's a man. Well, fuck ya, says Cassidy and pulls back his fist to strike. And Jesse catches it. Jesse says, this ain't the time or the place. Can we just go somewhere and talk? Have a drink or something like we used to? Jesse's not inclined to talk and he's got things to do, but he says there's a bar in San Antonio called Hondo's. He actually says San Antonio. Yeah, which is what he says. It's a couple of blocks from the Alamo and he's going to be there two months from tonight. That is when and where they will talk. And this is a double John Wayne reference. Hondo is obviously a very popular John Wayne film. And the Alamo is another one. Well, it's a triple John Wayne reference, because John Wayne is also not inclined to talk to you. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, Mindy Cassidy, he's not inclined to talk to you or me. <laughs> just Jesse Custer, really. He's just going to let actions speak louder than words. <laughs> yeah, so they shut the door in Cassidy's face, and he is left standing there. Amy wonders how Jesse was able to catch his fist. I thought you guys said he was some kind of monster. Jesus, how the hell did you do that? Hmm? Oh, could one of you drive me to the hospital, please? I think I just broke every bone in my hand. I just want to point out here also that because Jesse has this plan to meet Cassidy, we don't know all the details of that yet, but this means that he has made his final plan. He knows what he's doing going into the final issues. Meanwhile, in San Francisco, Hairstar is going to see Eisenstein. Featherstone asks if she and Hoover can come along. I'm on my way to meet my doom here. The last thing I need is you two clowns coming along to turn a tragedy into a farce. Yeah, after he walks off, Hoover says, He's horrible to you. No, Hoover. It's just his funny little way. Yeah. But she's crying. It's sad. She loves a man who ain't no good. <laughs> yeah, you put the finger on it. So, somewhere in Georgia. Wipe the arse! Wipe the arse! Wipe the arse! Jean! Gene, help! Right, Arseface runs through the mansion past press and people repossessing his stuff to Gene's office, and there he finds a bottle of Jack Daniels. I mean, you gotta love that distinctive bottle shape. They put a trademark on that, and for good reason. An empty bottle of Jack Daniels. I just thought that was saving detail. It's beyond use, is my point. Gene, he really took everything. <laughs> There's a note that says Arseface. We're gonna come back to this. Yeah, and so now we come back to the climactic scene between Star and Eisenstein. The other plots that we've been following have all pretty much wrapped up at this point. You know, Arspace got left a little note. We actually see more of that. But this should clue us into the fact that this is the climactic moment of this story arc, as it were. The showdown between Eisenstein and Herr Star is sort of the big action climax that we're going to get. Yeah, and Star doesn't even really wait for Eisenstein to say he's figured stuff out. He just starts ranting at him. You don't buy that sacred bloodline crap that Grail have been peddling any more than I do. You are wrong, Star. Your lack of faith is your weakness. You do not believe, therefore no one believes. So very, very wrong. That's a nice moment. Eisenstein goes on to say that 
Star destroyed Masada and killed the child. He actually believed in the child, but since he's gone, Eisenstein is willing to take over Star's plan to use Jesse as the Messiah to make Armageddon go forward as the Grail had planned, but... By then you will be dust. And I wonder who will be Allfather next. You are the monster here, Star. I knew you were dangerous the first time I laid eyes on you. Useful, even vital. Born to be sacred executioner, but ultimately lethal. Crusader zeal, without the faith to temper it. You severed the bloodline of God Almighty. You crippled the Grail in their holy endeavor. You jeopardized the second coming. You truly are a monster. And you are lost, as you were from the moment you crossed swords with me. Nothing to say, Star? Fuck it. <laughs> yeah, okay, Star tries to jump off the roof, I guess? Well, I don't know whether that's to get away or to kill himself before they can. The Spetsnaz guy comes at Star. He grabs Star by the leg. The leg comes off, because it's fake. Wrong leg. While he is distracted, Star shoots him. Ha ha ha! Fuck you, Eisenstein, you twisted little reptile. I win! I win! <sighs> oh, shit. Yeah, the dog comes looming Jezebel. out of a... That's her name. Yep. You got me there. How dare I think of a dog as a mere animal? <laughs> Jezebel charges. We hear a bunch of blams and an arg. And Star, in the next panel, is lying there barely alive. Jezebel is dead. But my cock is in the bitch's mouth, and not in a good way. Okay, I mean, Star is an asshole, but anyway. Well... Yeah, so he's lost his dick in this adventure. Munched by a dog. Once again, Star has come out on top of another... Or not come out on top, but survived. <laughs> he's survived another trial, and once again, it's at the cost to his body. Yeah, that's right. He has suffered one disfiguring wound after another, and he's taking it pretty hard. Now, Arseface is reading the letter that Jean left him with amazing calligraphy here. Yeah, the letter is, I think, too long for us to read it all, but I will give you, listeners, an executive summary. Dear Arseface, I have fucked off and taken all your money. <laughs> yeah, that's basically it. I like a couple of lines here. He says, It is my considered opinion that my remaining with the company, or indeed within the borders of the United States, would be an endeavor fraught with difficulties. <laughs> he also says, I'll return to you at, it seems to me, this supremely appropriate moment, the great and solemn responsibility for your own destiny. <laughs> yeah. So he's left, he's taken all the money. He also makes it pretty clear that all future proceeds from Georgia Records will continue to be funneled to him. I think that's actually impossible. That seems tough, especially considering that he's basically blown the scene. Yeah, he can probably fuck off and take all the money he's embezzled with him to the Caymans. But I think that seeing as Arspace is back at number one, he's still making money. He should probably be able to get some kind of uh, injunction so that the proceeds of his record go to him instead of to, to Gene after Gene has fled the country. Yeah, especially after he has it from the horse's mouth that Gene was a con man all along. Yeah, Georgia Records has assets. Earthspace is entitled to them. We know uh, he's not been receiving royalties. Because he hasn't out. been receiving his royalty checks. Yeah. yeah. So that's our that's uh, the Vertigai's legal corner <laughs> for this week. <laughs> um, not, 
not to be mistaken with professional legal advice. Okay, so our space has effectively, let's just say, been left penniless and in arrears since we saw people repossessing shit. Yeah, we, um, can, we can say that he's been left penniless, although I don't believe it. Yeah, he walks out with all these reporters. They're asking him what the hell he's up to with his controversial public statements. But I never said any of that. But no one wants to listen. He walks off alone, the hatred bouncing off of his back. Yeah, I like that he's not only going to be excommunicated, but also the President of the United States has spoken against him. (laughs) That would be Bill Clinton, right? I guess it's 1999, so it would actually be... No, yeah, that would be Bill Clinton. It would be be Bill Clinton. Yeah. Yeah, and it's amusing to me that the pontiff talking excommunication and the suggestion that he'll have a parental advisory brand are the same. Not his records, himself. Uh, yeah, he himself. <laughs> but that's, that's presented with equal levels of concern. Okay, so Jesse and Tulip are packing up the car. Actually, Jesse's not helping because of the broken hand. We'll come back to that. But they're packing up the car. Back in the second greatest city in the world. What's the greatest city in the world? Essen, Germany. Oh, all right. They pack up the car. Guns. Ammo. Hug. That's Amy. You call it the first sign of trouble. You got that? You call and I'll come running with an airstrike, she goes on to say. Standing there beside the car, waiting, Jesse hears from a distance. Help me. Now Amy comes up and says goodbye to Jesse. They hug. You come back and see this old maid when you've got this craziness behind you, okay? Goodbye, Amy, darling. They get in the car, Tulip makes fun of Jesse for not helping, and here Amy says a very important line as they drive away. I wish I was going with you. I wish I was one of you. Either one. Yeah. We talked about this a little bit last week in terms of tall in the saddle. In our last Preacher episode. Yeah, that's right, not last week. To put it briefly, you can read this a couple of different ways. One is that Amy is simply jealous of them having like a larger-than-life love story while she's left out in the cold. Another is that She's basically interested in either or both of them. Yeah. But yeah, she's sad. And they have not done a good job at not letting their happiness make her sad. Yeah. (laughs) And so she's standing out in the snow by herself. Yeah, and that is as far as I can recall the last time we're going to see Amy. Potentially. Potentially, that's correct. Okay, and for a final note, we go back to the space shuttle. Atlantis? Atlantis, this is Houston. Uh, you boys still with us? Hello? Shuttle Atlantis, this is Houston Control. Please resume transmission. Over. Jesus Christ, Houston, you're never gonna believe this. Some dirty motherfucker wrote. And Johnny Lee Wombat dances with joy outside his tent, beside the enormous sign he has carved in the desert that says, Fuck you. And that's where we finally get the title of this issue, Dot the I's and Cross the T's. Garth Ennis is wrapping up all the little plots in preparation for the end of the series. Yeah, and I think we are prepared. Your body can take it. I think the vertical men are prepared for the final issues of Preacher Man. Yeah, so what's to talk about here? Definitely, it's interesting that the final confrontation is a confrontation with Cassidy. Yes, and with Star. Yeah, we come to that. They're both looming. Will Gene Sargent also play a role in the apocalypse? No. No. (laughs) (laughs) No, Gene Sargent has fucked off to the Caymans, and uh, he's made his exit quite effectively. Can we just... Can we assume that Eisenstein is now dead? 
Oh, yeah, that's an interesting point, because he kills the Spetsnaz, who never has a name besides the Spetsnaz, and he kills Jezebel, the dog. They probably gave him a number. Oh, I see, yeah. Yeah, I... We don't actually see him kill Eisenstein, but we can assume that Eisenstein is not part of the picture anymore. It seems like the thing to do. Yeah. He's sort of abandoned the pretense of following the Grail's goals. Well, yeah, he has his own vision for them, at least. Mm-hmm. So, that Cassidy is a bad guy. Yeah, we finally learned some of the worst about Cassidy. He's an awful human being, except well, for the um... second part. <laughs> He's not going to get a tan anytime soon. Uh, I mean, I'm fixing to tan his hide. <laughs> Heroin will fuck you up, man. Not that I'm making excuses, it's just... We had a lot of sort of semi-comic references to, Oh, I do heroin all the time. And then we find out how bad things got, and it's really fucked up. And He's kind of a monster. Yep. He's left a trail of broken people in his wake. Yeah, and he's and still, Tulip was almost one of them. He still has that charisma. He's able to get close to people and get them to love him. We talked a little bit before. Uh, I don't remember if this was in an episode or in the conversation we had about the last issue about <laughs> the difference between like malicious Cassidy and and weak Cassidy, right? Yeah, that's a big theme for his character in this issue. Annie tells us that he doesn't know his bullshit is bullshit. Yeah, exactly. He wants to ingratiate himself with people, but he's he, he's always having a good time, and he wants everybody to join in on the good time. Yeah, and he just As doesn't he... think about where it lands other people. Yeah, yeah. And he shows up at Tulips with this insistence that he's here to see if she's okay. Because she was deep into alcohol and pills the last time he saw her. And I think that that has the stink of bullshit. Okay. That he's there to see if she's okay. But, good Cassidy does exist. Okay. He, is, he really did try to do the right thing and save Jesse until Jesse used the word of God. Yeah, that's right. Jesse sacrificed himself to save Cassidy. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's so compelling, this drama with Cassidy, because he is such a nuanced character. He's a total piece of shit. Mm -hmm. And he has a good man somewhere inside him that you just rarely see glimpses of. He's got kind of a deep need for a love that keeps him reaching out to people, even though he's going to destroy them because he's ultimately selfish and self-destructive. Yeah. So you read his saying he's here to, to make sure Tulip is okay as not a lie that Cassidy himself believes. No, yeah, I don't even think Cassidy believes that. I think he knows that he's there to get her back if he can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this brings into conflict the two most important relationships that we've seen Jesse in in this series. His masculine brohood, his friendship with Cassidy versus his romance with Tulip. But it's yeah, not its not so much that he chooses one of the two people as that Cassidy's an asshole. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting that Cassidy's badness is established without juxtaposition to some like perfect figure mm, uh, okay jesse and tulip both have their flaws as well yeah but they're basically good mm -hmm. and they don't like destroy everything in their path the way that cassidy does yeah you know they they have real loyalty to each other and to their friends yeah yeah that's right their loyalty to each other isn't selfish in the way that cassidy's 
relationship with anybody is. Right. And that's a thing that definitely comes back in the last couple of issues, for better or for worse. Yeah, I think we might have said just about all we can say for the moment, but it's going to be an interesting ride, these last handful of issues of Preacher Man. Yeah. So what do you think about Eisenstein and the Grail hierarchy? Well, like I said, uh, Eisenstein's existence is almost a retcon in and of itself. Yeah. But it's important... First of all, it's the only thing that gives these four issues that we've just read any kind of, like, an arc and any kind of, like, peril. Okay, uh, yeah. And I think you need that sort of tension. I think you need something for Hairstar to play against at this phase in the story. Yeah, well, that's kind of how I felt about it, is that Eisenstein is something that was added here for Star to have something to do. Yeah, um, and but that put... is important, and that, and that puts him in the right position for the final story arc. Yeah, and Star's story is a story of, like, one sacrifice after another made in the in the name of this kind of monomaniacal fixation. Yeah. And so this is just one more big loss for him. One more hurdle that he has survived, but at great personal cost. Yeah. His penis. <laughs> yep, that's specifically what it was. And Star's interest in the Grail has always been personal. He's always been a rather selfish fucker. He, you know, it's implied that he may have lied when he said he was Christian in the first place to join the group. Right. And that comes to a head in this conversation that he has with Eisenstein in this episode where he he says, oh, you know, you were full of shit the same as I was. You were just using the grail the same as I was. And Eisenstein says, no, there are people who believe even though you don't. Right. Your lack of faith is your weakness. Yeah. Like Darth Vader, Eisenstein finds Star's lack of faith. <laughs> right. And uh Johnny Lee Wombat's place in this issue is kind of he's kind of out of place here, but he fills a couple of pages effectively and we get a capstone on his story. Yeah, it's just again, like dotting the T's and wrapping up the eyes, doing whatever it is we do with eyes, you know. <laughs> yeah, and that drive, that wrapping up every little plot point and minor character before we get into the final, final story arc. We'll continue in our next Preacher episode. But first, join us next week for Sandman, the Kindly Ones. Coming to a head, wrapping up. Verdi Guys is written and performed by Eric and I. I produce the show, Eric Handles Social Media. Our theme song is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertiguys.blueberry.com, where we've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. By now, you know how to find us on Twitter and Facebook. At Vertiguys and at BlankCastSean and Vertiguys at gmail.com if you want to ask questions or just chat about comic books. You also know that we would love for you to spread the word about Vertiguys any way you can, be it electronically or in person. I gotta say, this is some really blunt exposition we're engaged in here. <laughs> so the only thing left for us to say is thank you for listening. Thanks, everybody. Well, okay, so I watched the trailer for The Boys. Which yes. is based on a series by Garth Ennis. Is that an image series? It was Wildstorm for its first year. Wildstorm. And then Dynamite after that. Okay. The underrated Carl Urban as Billy Butcher. I don't know if that's good casting, but he's an actor that I like to see. He's probably the best part of those Star Trek movies. Really? That's the way I feel about it. Okay. I don't know if I think he's the best part about those Star Trek movies. And I don't know if he's particularly good casting, but he's a good enough actor to make up the difference. Okay. My question is, do the boys have superpowers? Because it seems like they would need them, but it seems like they're also carrying around and shooting a lot of guns, which doesn't seem all that useful against superheroes. They carry guns. They use injections of this blue shit that makes them faster and stronger. Okay. 
Like, temporarily? Yeah, I think you have to keep using it. Okay. So they do have a, an equalizer to bring them up. They to have something level. to give themselves super strength if they need it, yeah. Okay. All right. You mentioned Jack Quaid playing Huey. Obviously, like, Simon Pegg is the actor that Huey was modeled on, but he's also probably too old for the part now. Right. Well, how do you feel about that casting? I don't know that I know Jack Quaid from anything. Okay, yeah. I think it's fine. He doesn't look like Simon Pegg. Yeah. But he looks like he can pull off the everyman thing. Although it's weird that, like, the child of two movie stars looks like an everyman. Mm, okay. I guess I sort of had the opposite effect when I saw him for the first time. I thought, wow, that's Meg Ryan's kid. You thought he was too movie star. I don't know if he was too handsome, but I definitely noticed immediately that he looks like Meg Ryan. Okay. Of course, you know, those Quaid genetics, they they gave us Dennis Quaid, but they also gave us Randy. <laughs> <laughs> so, mixed bag there. Every time a Quaid is born, the gods flip a coin. <laughs> right. 